Amen. Would you join with me this morning in turning in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 20. Acts chapter 20 this morning. We commence after Paul's ministry in Ephesus. As Luke continues his account, verse 1 of Acts 20. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given much encouragement, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopatar the Berean, son of Purus, accompanied him and the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychius, and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And after five days, we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them intending to depart the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, attending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the next day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to them, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold... I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus 
to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now behold, I know that none of you among you who I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God, and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are being sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, and you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities, to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how He Himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all, because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Would you pray with me as we ask for God's help before his word? Father, how comforted we are to gather this morning not on the basis of conjecture or subjective feelings, but only because of the promise of your own word. It's on the basis of your promise to us, given to us in your holy scriptures, that we come this morning with ears of faith, certain that you are willing and that you are able to direct your church, to sustain her and to feed her, And so we plead with you this morning that you would be faithful to send your Spirit, for without his faithful work, our listening and our preaching and our attendance is in vain. So Lord, would you soften our hearts, open our eyes, that you might plant the good seed of your word in our hearts, that it might grow and bear fruit 30, 60, even a hundredfold. And we pray that you would do this for the good of your church and for the glory of of your Son, for it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we have been making our way through the book of Acts, we've been reminding ourselves at various points along the way that what we are reading and what we are hearing is essentially the continuing story of all the the ascended and reigning Jesus is doing on earth through His church. And at center stage in this mission of Christ is the Word of God and the work of the Spirit. It is by the Word and by the Spirit, as we have seen, that men and women are converted, that churches are planted and also strengthened. And this work of strengthening is vital to the mission of the church. It is essential to the health of the church. And you will notice the first half or so of Acts 20 summarizes the Apostle Paul's efforts 
to comfort and, as Luke says, encourage these newly formed verses. Within the first 16 or so verses, what we have more or less is a travel narrative as Paul and his fellow laborers move from Ephesus to Macedonia into Greece and then Troas and Assos and Chios and Samos and then finally this port city of Miletus. And within each of these travels, Luke is quick to point out the emphasis upon the church being strengthened or comforted. Back in verse 1, he tells us that before departing Ephesus, what does he do? He gathers the disciples there together and he encourages them. In verse 2, Luke records that Paul and his companions moved through Macedonia. And again, we read they were given much encouragement. And then you have this portion in verses 7 through 12 where Paul seeks to encourage and exhort the disciples at Troas so much so that he pulls an all-nighter. He prolongs his speech until midnight. And Luke gives us this gracious and humorous account of young Eutychus nodding off and then falling out a window into the street below. And what do we read in verse 12? As they took the youth up alive... They were not a little comforted. The Apostle Paul, always the ever ever faithful encourager. I mention this because I believe that we're meant to keep this theme of church strengthening before us as we read Paul's words to the Ephesian elders. For what could serve to strengthen churches more than a solid pastor's conference? Yes, What we're reading here at the end of chapter 20, we are hearing the very first pastor's conference as the Ephesian elders gather together the coastal city of Miletus. Now as I say that, please do not make the tragic mistake of thinking that because this passage is given to pastors, it has little to nothing to say to you. Please do not make that grave mistake. Thinking I am not a pastor, I have no desire to be a pastor, so what does 21 say? We must remember, what does the book of Acts teach us? Number one, if you are a disciple of Christ, then you've been enlisted into Christ's mission to spread the gospel to every nation as either a sender or a goer. By default, as a disciple and a member of his church, you are upon Christ's mission. Secondly, the church is God's means to reach the world with the promise of the gospel. And lastly, God has organized his church in such a way that she is equipped and led through the oversight and service of elders or pastors, as Paul would write in Ephesians 4. What I'm getting at is if you are a faithful member of Christ's church, longing to see the gospel taken to every nation, tribe, tongue, people, and language, then you must also care for the condition of your elders. Because in God's wisdom, His means to reach the world through His church concerns the health and the leadership of these men we call pastors or elders. 
So as we think about missions, about planting and strengthening churches, we ought to take up the words of Acts 20 and plead with God that he would produce and preserve and place such men in his church for his glory. For generally, the health of the church can be measured by the health of her elders. So taking all this into account, what is it that the Apostle Paul says to these men who have gathered together there in the port city to hear from him one last time? What we see is that Paul exhorts these brother pastors concerning being a shepherd. He speaks to the shepherd's courage. He speaks to the shepherd's charge. And then finally he gives these shepherds some comfort. The courage, the charge, the comfort of the shepherd. Let's begin with the shepherd's courage. We see this in verses 18 through 24. The shepherd's courage. And as Paul often does, he points to himself as an example or as a pattern to follow after in Christian discipleship. And as he stands before these Ephesian elders, he points to his own observable character by the means which to exhort these men. How he lived among them, he says in verse 18. You know how I lived among you from the moment I first stepped in Asia. And he uses this observable character then as the platform by which he calls them to follow his lead, primarily in this area of courage. Because shepherds need, first of all, courage in the face of opposition. He calls them to courage because they need courage in the face of opposition. You'll notice that Paul mentions he faced tears and trials through the plots of the Jews. The book of Acts certainly testifies for us just some of this detail from the riots of chapter 19 to stonings to arrest to eventual beatings and imprisonment, Paul certainly knew something about opposition. And these Ephesian elders would have seen this with their own eyes. They would have known this firsthand and experienced some of what Paul speaks of here. But the point of bringing all this up for Paul is not to swap war stories with these men, but to remind them of this opposition and that in such opposition, he did not shrink back from declaring to them anything that was profitable. The courage that Paul is primarily concerned with is a courage to faithfully proclaim the gospel in the face of hardened opposition. He stands before these Ephesian pastors reminding them that he did not shrink back, that he did not soften the edges, that he did not somehow muffle his speech when he was declaring to both Jews and Greeks repentance towards God, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Think of that just for a moment. Proclaiming day after day, week after week, year after year after year, To have these Greeks respond with, Paul, that's total foolishness. That's child's play. You are a complete simpleton. Your speech, Paul, has no sense of wisdom. I mean, honestly, Paul, a God becomes a man and dies in the place of mortals? Paul, that is foolish. 
you're a fool. And it's no better with the Jews. For to the Jews, the message of the cross is an offense. Paul, how arrogant of you to blaspheme, to assert that Jesus Christ sits on the eternal throne of David, to say that Yahweh has come in the flesh. Saying things like that, Paul, will get your head knocked open. I did not shrink back, he says. Courage is the need of the hour. Because we proclaim a message of foolishness and offense. We proclaim that the God of the scriptures is the creator, that he is the rightful judge over every man, over every woman, and all of their thoughts, motives, and deeds, that he created us to be his image bearers, to reflect his glory. But what we also proclaim is that we've ignored him, that we've suppressed his truth, that we have hardened our hearts, That we are guilty of this cosmic treason, the most painful and the most damnable betrayal ever imagined. Creation turns its back on Creator. And therefore, for good reason, we must repent. All men must repent in turning from their sin, and as we proclaim, turn towards Christ, placing their faith in His substitutionary life and death and falling upon him as the only mediator between God and men. Courage. It takes courage to articulate, to proclaim, and to faithfully transmit that message. Take courage in the face of opposition, for the gospel that we proclaim, it cuts low the pride of men, and it knocks over the sacred idols of men's hearts. These men, these elders... They needed to hear something of courage in the face of opposition. But Paul also knew they needed to hear something of courage in uncertainty and affliction. Paul could also point to his life as an example, saying that he stayed the course amidst uncertainty and difficult days. And when a church culture like our own has enjoyed, as it were, seasons of prolonged comfort, even standing at times among the so-called majority opinion, we, brothers and sisters, would be well served in remembering that we are, in fact, strangers and exiles here. And so we should not be surprised when we begin to be dismissed as irrelevant. And I think that is in the rearview mirror even now. Recognizing that Being called irrelevant eventually moves to being called a bigot or evil or not good for the flourishing of society. And when a church remembers that, that we actually are strangers and aliens, we remember that we are not guaranteed comforts, smooth sailing, and unhindered planning for our future. That means specifically that there may be seasons of uncertainty over our finances, over our health, even life itself. And this has been normative for the church for much of her history, especially for her pastors. For when the church says, we will obey God and not men, and we are no longer in the realm of idealism. We are no longer having cute conversations in seminary dorm rooms. 
This is why in our uncertainty and our affliction, we pray with great zeal for his kingdom to come. We pray for his will to be done. We pray very specifically and very tangibly, give us this day our daily bread. Deliver us from evil. Yes, courage amidst uncertainty and affliction is the great need for the church, especially her elders. But it's one thing to beat the drum of courage. Where exactly does this courage come from? What moves a man like Paul to not just say these things with great bravado and then set sail on a ship, but to actually live them out, to model them before their eyes? How could a man say such thing? Courage, brothers. Verse 24, there's your answer. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's how. Once a man or woman is gripped by the truth that their life is not their own, that they've been bought with a price, then they are ready to exclaim, I must glorify God with my body. How much certainty, how much clarity would be gained amidst all of these murky waters of uncertainty and even affliction if we would but remind ourselves our lives are not our own. I do not count my life worth mentioning for my great aim and my life's goal is simply to testify of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Speaking to a room full of pastors, Charles Spurgeon said, it is our duty and privilege to exhaust our lives for Jesus. We are not to be living specimens of men in fine preservation, but living sacrifices whose lot is to be consumed. We are to spend and to be spent, not to lay ourselves up in lavender and to nurse our flesh. What is a faithful shepherd? Well, in part, he's a man of courage. But after, after speaking to the, the shepherd's courage, Paul goes on in verse 25, and he addresses them, which is the shepherd's charge, the charge given to the shepherds there. In verse 25, this is the second time that Paul mentions not shrinking back. And here he adds something. He said, not only... Have I not shrunken back? I am innocent of the blood of all. Now, I believe personally that Paul had recently been meditating in the prophet Ezekiel because he is taken up with these themes of shepherding or the watchman. He speaks of sheep and wolves in this section. He speaks of the flock of God. He speaks of overseers who are to care or to literally they are to shepherd or pastor the flock of God. And this phrase that he uses here, I am innocent of the blood of all, it tells us something of the soberness and the great responsibility that is placed upon our elders. The Old Testament text that helps illuminate chapter 20 here is that of the watchman in Ezekiel 3 and also 33. 
This watchman was responsible to blow the trumpet, to stand on the city walls and to blow the trumpet should the enemy be advancing, to warn the city, danger is coming. And if that watchman failed to blow that trumpet, the Lord says to Ezekiel, their blood is on your head. And as a watchman on a city wall must sound the alarm of a pending attack, so too must God's watchmen, as they are responsible to warn their hearers of judgment to come and the need to repent. Yes, the shepherd's charge could be summed up in one word, watch. And Paul says specifically, watch your life. How often do the scriptures exhort us to watch, to stay alert? And I think Paul knows something of the urgent need and the need of the day as he charges these elders in the same way. Pay attention. Keep watch. Now, why would Paul tell elders to watch themselves? I understand the shepherd's task to watch the sheep But is it irresponsible for a shepherd to spend time watching himself? I think this is a good reminder to us, church, that our elders are not immune to the same corruptions of remaining sin, the same tendencies, the particular temptations and the dangers that lie within a man's heart lie there regardless if he is called pastor or not. Perhaps there is even a greater danger for our elders and that they are the ones devoted to the ministry of the prayer and and word. And being devoted to such things, you can somehow deceive yourself into thinking that the hours that you have spent handling the Scriptures, caring for the flock of God, somehow is sufficient evidence that your life is on track. There is great danger in being a pastor theologian, a pastor counselor, a shepherd, if he is not first and foremost a gardener of his own life, tending, watching, keeping, observing, and caring. Therefore, this concern of Paul and the need for every elder is to stay alert to remain attentive to the condition of his heart. And in thinking upon this, we would perhaps land in Proverbs chapter 4, that for good reason loved exhortation to keep your heart with all vigilance, for out of it spring all the issues of life. John Flavel has done the church a great service by opening up this one verse and expounding all the numerous ways that we might keep the heart. And I commend it to you. From this one proverb, he walks through ten different seasons in which it would behoove us to pay extra careful attention to watch ourselves, to keep the heart. He mentions seasons of prosperity. When providence, he said, smiles upon us and dandles us upon his knee. Keep watch. How dangerous can seasons of prosperity be? How about seasons of adversity? He says, when providence frowns upon you and ruins all your outward comforts, keep watch. 
Seasons of trouble when the church is oppressed or under persecution, keep watch. How about a season of particular temptation? As he said, when Satan lays close to the siege of Fort Royal of a Christian's heart, keep watch. He mentioned seasons of darkness. When waves of doubt roll across our lives, he says, keep watch. For Flavel to keep the heart is to carefully preserve it from sin which disorders it, maintain that spiritual good and gracious frame which fits us for a life of communion with God. That is the way in which we are watching. All that would come against its preservation and all that would hinder us from enjoying that communion with God that we are called to be a part of. But brothers and sisters, if our elders, if our pastors are to serve as our examples in how they watch their own lives, the tenacity in which they do this, should it not serve as a pattern for us? For we too must guard our hearts with all diligence. For we too must pay careful attention. We too must carve out time to tend, to watch, to observe to lament and repent. So we would be well served in asking ourselves as we watch, what are the particular temptations that tug on my affections? How am I spending my free time? And what does that reveal about my desires? We could look at our speech, for if our words simply reveal the condition of our hearts, What do my conversations reveal about my soul, the condition of my heart? This is going to mean that we're often standing before the reflecting glass of God's word as we care for our souls. And when you see a pattern, when you uncover a particular idol that has seduced your affections, do not let it alone. Lament confess, repent, and ask for the Spirit's help to mortify this sin that you might be a faithful watcher, that you might guard your heart. And brother pastors, we exhort you, feed yourselves that you might feed us well. And we exhort you to watch yourselves that you might watch over us with all wisdom and with all care. For the sake of the church and for glory, the glory of Christ, do not let up one bit. So Paul says, shepherds must certainly watch themselves, but he says they must most certainly watch the flock. Secondly, this charge to watch concerns not only the elder's life, but also those that have been entrusted to his care, for they are stewards over the flock of God. But why must he watch? Well, because this is not an office of self-appointment. This is what Paul says. The shepherds are overseeing the flock of God because they are placed there by the Spirit of God. Christ's church is to be organized according to the mind of Christ, and Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd, calls and appoints and sets his overseers in his church by his own doing. Now, yes, he most certainly uses means, 
calling the church to identify and affirm and support such men. But don't think that these means by which God works are any less sober in the fact that the Holy Spirit is the one who places his elders within his church. See, it's one thing to appoint yourself to a position of influence and oversight. It's something entirely different for the Holy Spirit of God to set you apart and to say, watch my church, for they are my purchased people, and if I have obtained them by my own blood. If that does not sharpen your senses and call you to attention, I do not know what will. They are to watch as shepherds. They are to watch as shepherds, for that is literally the command contained within care for the church of God. This means that the one attribute that is to mark out the overseer or the elder more than anything is the shepherding heart of Christ. We can cross off the list that these men are not to lead us as CEOs. They are not to take their cues from the entrepreneur leading a startup church. They are not life coaches. They are not kings. They are most certainly not celebrities. No, the scripture and the charge of Paul is to shepherd the church of God. Shepherds lay down their life for the sheep. This means they sacrifice comfort. They sacrifice sleep. They sacrifice reputation and honor and if need be, life itself for the church of God. A shepherd is not a hireling. He's not a day laborer sticking around until payday. Because a shepherd cares for the sheep with the same tone, the same posture, the same concerns as the chief shepherd. And what are these shepherds to be watching for? Well, certainly the scriptures will teach that shepherds are watching the sheep and ensuring that they are well fed that they're being led into green pastures. But faithful shepherds are not only concerned with sheep. They're also watching for wolves. And as Calvin said, the pastor ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and one for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. The scripture supplies him with the means of doing both. Shepherds are watching for wolves. And that's exactly what Paul has in mind here as he exhorts these Ephesian elders. For he says, false teachers and fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. This flock, it was purchased by God's own blood. Meaning the motive of their quote-unquote ministry will result in a pasture of mangled sheep. That's what this results in. Instead of caring for the sheep, these wolves will use the sheep. They will abuse them and ruin them for their own benefit. And if the elder's charge is not sober enough, Paul says that these elders must not only be scanning the horizon for these fierce wolves, but he also says, you must also be keeping watch among yourselves. From among yourselves, 
will rise up men speaking twisted things who are seeking to draw followers to themselves and away from Jesus Christ. And these were not empty threats. For if you continue reading in the church of Ephesus, you find that Ephesus stands to bear testimony to this very warning. As Paul would later have to write to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. He would go on in verse 19, mentioning that some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they might learn not to blaspheme. This was not an empty threat. Yes, the charge of the shepherd is a sober one. It's not to be taken lightly. It's not to be entered into flippantly. And a church who understands these things will never leave off praying for her elders. Taking them before the throne of God, pleading for their preservation, for their faithful endurance, so that they might discharge all the duties of their ministry. And while this note of solemnity is most certainly a part of the elders' task, Paul does not end there. For he comes lastly to the shepherd's comfort. You read of this in that section beginning in verse 32. Verses 32 to 35, Paul speaks to the great comfort of every shepherd. Again, Paul is the model of Christ, the good shepherd. He not only warns, he not only charges, but he also comforts, he also assures. And no good pastor's conference can ever end without this exhortation to the brothers to keep going, to remind the brothers of the sufficiency of God in the power of the gospel. So he comforts them by reminding them in verse 32 of God's protection Elders need to be reminded of the great comfort of God's protection. Remember, Paul is leaving these men and this church, which he labored lovingly and diligently for three years. And where do you put something so precious amid such dangers? Into the most secure place possible. I commend you to God. This word commend that he uses, it's the same word. The same word that Christ himself uses upon the cross as he commits his soul to the Father with his dying breath. I commend you to God. Now, there is no safer place, no greater comfort for an elder than to hear that you labor on entrusted to God and the word of his grace. When he labors in his study, pouring over the Scriptures, he does not labor alone. For he goes with God, graciously illuminating the Scriptures as he works. When he plants the good seed of God's Word among his hearers, he does not labor alone. For it's God himself who causes the seed to bear fruit, accomplishing what he purposes. When the elder counsels the weary soul wounded by Satan's devices and their own sinful foolishness, he's not left to his own wisdom, for God goes with him, 
giving him wisdom liberally. When he stands by the hospital bed sharing the final moments of earthly breath with one of his people, he speaks words not of his own invention, but the God of all comfort stands with him. The word of his grace stands beside him. And when he's alone with his thoughts, away from the pulpit, away from his study and his people, unable to see any evidence or any fruit, even here the elder is not alone. Because God has been with him and the word of his grace shall always accomplish his own purpose. Yes, the elder can take great comfort in being commended to God. But there's not only this comfort in God's protection. Paul also mentioned there is great comfort, brother, in God's provision. This is what he says in verses 33 on through 35. There is great comfort in what God provides. In a ministry that is marked by constant watching, by giving, sacrificing for others, there can be this temptation to look at the immediate circumstances you are in, the meager fruit, and become discouraged, embittered, even overtaken by covetousness. Paul comforts these men by reminding them that it is God who goes with them as their great provider, for he will build you up. He will build or establish the house. And it is by his doing and by his grace that he will bring you into a spiritual inheritance. And though we know this, how often do we try and imagine that all the glories of heaven are just a place of perfection, a place of ideal circumstance and ideal temperature, forgetting that the richness of our inheritance is not better circumstances or nicer stuff. The richness of our inheritance is union with Christ himself. Heaven, Sibs said, heaven is not heaven without Christ. It is better to be in any place with Christ than to be in a heaven itself without him. All delicacies without Christ are but as a funeral banquet. What is all without Christ? I say the joys of heaven are not the joys of heaven without Christ, for he is the very heaven of heaven. Coveting gold, silver, apparel, it is the rot of the church when she has forgotten her inheritance. And pastors are enabled to leave off this sort of covetousness through the comfort that comes in being reminded of God's faithful provision. Elders become the model for this sort of contentment as they work hard, as they give sacrificially to help the weak, convinced that their sacrifice far outweighs any blessing that could come from public notoriety or a book deal or the comfort of weekly direct deposit. It is better to give than to receive. And that is only true for us if we are convinced that Christ is our actual inheritance and that His glories and union with Him far outweigh 
any blessing that we could benefit from here on this earth. The great comfort of the word of his grace speaks not only of the forgiveness of sin, but also union with Christ. It's the hope of heaven. It's the lasting inheritance where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For what awaits us is no mere stash of goods and gold, but the glory of Jesus Christ himself and this eternal satisfaction that lies within dwelling with him. This is the shepherd's great comfort. In season and out of season. Brothers and sisters, we have been bumping up against this within this entire text the whole time and it would be a shame to not point out the obvious here. The only reason any of our elders has any sufficient hope or charge to remain faithful And the only reason why any member among us, any church, has any expectation that the gospel will actually prevail and that we shall one day inherit the earth is only because Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd. He's the senior pastor of the church. The one who will safely lead us into green pastures through the valley of the shadow of death and across the eternal river into the promised land. The faithful elder and the faithful member both have their eyes fixed upon the same point. The risen Christ who feeds and directs and sustains His church by His Word and Spirit. It's therefore because of this wonderful truth and this truth alone that we, brothers and sisters, we pray in faith that we work harder than any man and that we sleep sounder than any person because of the word of God and his grace. Yes, the mission of Christ moves onward because the Lord is our shepherd. The mission of Christ moves onward and will be triumphant because Christ is our watchman. He is the true prophet. He is the true priest, and he's the faithful king. Because of that, we have not only great reason to lift up our heads and rejoice, but to bow them, interceding for our church and for our elders. So would you join with me as we close in prayer? Father, you are the God of peace who brought up again from the dead our Lord Jesus who is the great shepherd of the sheep. And it's by the blood of His eternal covenant that we ask You would equip us with everything good that we might do Your will. And we ask that You might work in Emmanuel Baptist Church, both in her elders and her members, that which is pleasing in Your sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.